this is Mark Brown in the now empty auditorium at the end of the Mind, State and Society, 1960 to 2010, half a century of UK psychiatry and mental health services event in London at the Institute of Medicine. I'm here with... David Gilbert. Um, David was one of the final speakers of the day um, and had that kind of wonderful thing that always happens when you come to something with a slightly different perspective where people always go, that was a very thought-provoking, very different approach to to what we were speaking about. Um, For people at home who didn't have a chance to hear what you said and what you did, um, what was it you said to this room full of people? I was asked to provide a, a sense of how it felt as a psychiatric service user in the late 80s and early 90s, which of course was a transition time, closure of asylum, beginning of care in the community, Prozac dreams or nightmares. And what I tried to do was illustrate that by poetry, and I hope maybe people can be referred to the blog about that and tried to illustrate it by saying also that there had been a looming presence in my somewhat emotionally constrained Jewish post-war background that led to an anxiety and fear of asylum so that when I finally did go into into one though it was my fears fulfilled and then I talked more about the I suppose the atmosphere is, or the weather in a, the Barnet General Hospital um, in the early 90s, where coincidentally I was under the care of um, one Dr. George Ecos, who organised this, this event. And so I was trying to say, I suppose I wasn't asked to distill messages and I certainly wasn't asked to do what I normally get asked to do these days, which is talk about patient and user leadership. But I think what I was exploring was the roots of why I went into that realm. I've been an activist before, but I think what I was struck by, and perhaps throughout the day, is that for me to feel safe, and there's been a lot of talk about risk management and danger and safety from different perspectives, but but for me to feel safe, there's something about recognising your relationship with self and that will manifest in completely different ways for people with different conditions or any any experiences. There's about one's relationship with others, whether it's friends and family or or professionals or those around you, and then there's a relationship to the environment. And I think what I was trying to say was recast the conversation about safety towards thinking about those three types of relationships to think of maybe to think of pain and suffering as being coming to terms with 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 what for me was a a ruptured relationship with myself through a sort of obsessive compulsive disorder of some sort the rupture between me and my family and friends and lack of safety with others, professionals in power, and, and the sense of place. And, and a lot of the conversation today has been about place and the difference between an asylum and an in the community, different sorts of dangers, different sorts of advantages and disadvantages. And I suppose what I'm saying is that 
it's about relationships and I may be able to feel safe in the community and I may be able to feel safe in a hospital but fundamentally it requires me to feel safe in myself with others around me and with the space I'm in so maybe I was trying to recast it a little bit and that was I suppose leading on to a sense of my then political career picked up when I was quote discharged a phrase I don't like because it makes us sound like effluent but those transitions are vitally important that sense of continuity teams departments silos professionals health and social services housing the wider society those gaps also shift your relationships and the vulnerability on coming out and where was I going with this and yes I I ended up with a, a, a um, a story about how I joined the local mind and got involved in local politics and began to see the, um, the, the barriers towards effective user engagement mm-hmm. and the fantastic legacy of the mental health rights movement but also in other non-mental health conditions how the user movement, patient movement wasn't picking up on those lessons and, and so my subsequent career in patient public involvement was launched in those early days as being chair of mind. I think there's there's a really interesting thing in kind of events like this of a kind of profession telling themselves their own history. Mm. And I kind of feel that a lot of the time with, with mental health, um, you know, as people who use mental health services, so people who experience mental Ill health or distress, kind of history has a kind of very, very strong um, pull. It's a very, very important, important thing. The sense of connecting with your story, losing the thread of your story. Um, and I always kind of wonder about with things like caring the community. The, the sense in which sometimes the professions lead, you know, either lose the thread of their story or spend their time very much pursuing a version of their story that isn't actually the story that is true. A kind of, there's a kind of, I always think of kind of like mental health services as, as in some ways being like collective dreams of being cared for. Um, and it's kind of it's strange for me in, in, in today's event, kind of hearing so much about risk and the way that risk influenced kind of policy making and almost almost the lack of weight to that discussion in some ways that oh this is just the you know, this is what haha, this is what happened twenty years ago. Um I found it a bit discomforting to listen to. <laughs> It's really interesting. I think you and I have a really deep interest in words, what they mean, stories, narrative. And that's fascinating. I didn't, maybe I was just too bloody nervous about my own talk to hear that. What, what I found fascinating, I think you're probably right, If I is that 
we all have our different narratives of what happens you know who we are our identities are often made up of our stories and sometimes reframing one's story is a clue to actually getting better or getting worse those things we tell ourselves about why we've become who we are and they may be truth so that I, I definitely think there's a counterbalancing narrative or an interweaving narrative what I found fascinating was I felt like a bit of an interloper I mean I went to dinner last night with George Ecos and, and Tom Burns and these people I had to <laughs> <laughs> to ask them who they were which was a bit embarrassing because they all seem so well known but I, I, I suddenly thought, thought wouldn't it be amazing if we'd had a service users access to these privileged spaces in which to construct our stories to get together we don't have these places we don't have these spaces we come together maybe that's the power of Twitter I don't know that I don't, I'm not talking about a Royal College of Patients or service users necessarily, mm. certainly not, maybe an unroyal. So they, two things. One is I think they've had a lot of time and space to do that mm. and to construct a narrative. I suppose I felt the narrative may be more close to my own than you felt. So mm. it'd be interesting to see why you were so discomforted. I was just sort of slightly open-mouthed mm. when... Psychiatrists, were paint, they painted themselves as somewhat victims to national inquiries. Mm. And what didn't Tom Burns, he answered, asked a very brave question. He said, why, why were we so, he did use a word, began with S, but why were we so... Spineless. Spineless. Why were we so spineless in those inquiries? That's really interesting. Now, I don't subscribe to the professional as victim story, but I do sense as I get into directorships and stuff that everyone feels mm. relatively powerless now those psychiatric nurses on the ward felt powerless compared to the doctors and the psychiatrists felt less powerful than the neurologists and I don't know where I'm going Mark I, well, help I, me I, here I think, um, narratives sort of follow, yeah. f following David's talk um, Paul Farmer from Mind mm. was talking about the history of mind and its relationship to carers and families and there was a bit where he was sort of musing on whether the inclusiveness and in working together removes the possibility of radicalism or creates a space where less radical voices are more comfortably accommodated and I think the, the kind of question is always been, and I think you you talked about this maybe a little bit the question of whether you are giving up something to gain access mm. to the potential to make change or whether you're gaining something and I think there's there's lots of really really interesting stuff there I think there's, there's a, you, you suggested you, you suggested that maybe what we need is you know you, we need a patient-led inquiry or we need a patient-led something. And I, and I think that we might maybe be getting to the point where that's possible. And there are examples of people just doing inquiries, doing research. I'm kind of wondering, you know, whether we're getting to the point of just actually we, you know, people who are on the receiving end of services might have 
a more powerful voice in certain areas than people who provide them. I think it's an interesting, maybe, you know, they, they very, this conference was 1960 to 2010. They, you know, that 2010 was the cutoff point. You know, this is where history ends. The present day starts on the 1st of January, 2011, basically. So it was kind of really, really interesting, you know, that we learn the lessons from history, but the present day is happening now, sort of stuff. So a couple of things, and if we had time, I'd love to talk about this more. One is somebody asked me on the first day after I'd become a so-called patient director was, and when do you, how do you know when you've become institutionalized? And that was really challenging. I. I don't always think you can occupy both sets of the spectrum. When I became chair of mind, the user advocacy group hated me. Mm. And I think it comes with the territory. I've always felt more comfortable. So personally speaking, I'm a younger brother. So all my personality is is symbolized by the insight I had as a younger brother, which was come play with me, come play with me. I want to belong, love me, love me, fuck Mm. off, leave me alone, independence. So I've Mm. got this sort of ambivalence towards cooperation and collaboration. That's my mode and being kind and courteous. And and I've got this angry, you know, I love John McEnroe. And I've always tried to balance that. Two, it's easier for me as white male middle class to get access to this stuff. I don't mm. deny it. Um, that's absolutely true. I don't think inclusion and diversity, is, as um, the future president said, needs to be much more involved. You know, it's doubly, trebly, quadruply different, dif- mm. more difficult for others. I might not be alive if I've been black. Who knows? Yeah. But there's something about the movement. For me, you need the outsiders, you need the shouters, you need the angry people. And what, how did Midstaff start? How did any of these inquiries mm. start, apart from people shouting, having what people would call righteous anger? It's absolutely necessary. In what I find difficult about the user movement sometimes, not the user, but some people, when they come into a room or, or into a debate dialogue is if they then blame an individual for having evil intent mm. I think a lot of the problems are cock up rather than conspiracy and yes the, or if they blame the entire system or if they blame the entire profession if professionals were to generalize about us like that I think we're just mimicking the them and us I think when it gets into generalization or accusations of intent. I mean, Shipman is a different case. I think there are evil. I'm not. Yeah. I think the anger is absolutely justified. But sometimes, sometimes people like me have got to dress up in the suits and ask questions and be curious and be challenging in a different way. I feel myself a bit of a Trojan horse. I think I'm good at it. I mm. think I'm quite charming. I think I'm quite eloquent. And I get into these places, and my job is to open it up for other people. That's where I am now. But I'm still bloody angry. I'm still, when I, when I touch what happened to my friends, mm. I want to just blow. So you, how do you manage your anger when you're doing this stuff is a big deal. 
I think this is, this is an amazing another conversation for this. I think you did an incredible job on stage today, and thank you for your time oh, thank tonight. You.